If you've been following the Movement Movement podcast, you know every now and then I talk about the fact that I'm an all-American master of the fastest guys in my age group. But today we're going to be talking to someone who smokes me, and we're going to talk about what it takes to be an older athlete. And if you're interested in running, what it takes to run a little faster, be a little healthier, and many, many other things on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, usually starting feet first because you know those things are your foundation. Uh, we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies that you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, and to do that enjoyably, efficiently. Did I mention enjoyably? I know I did. That was a trick question because look, if you're not having fun, just do something different to you are. You're not going to keep it up if you're not having fun anyway. So why bother wasting your time with that? I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement podcast. We call it the Movement Movement because we are creating a movement that involves you. Really easy. doesn't cost anything more in a second. About natural movement. We're helping people rediscover that using your body the way it's meant to be used is the better, obvious, healthy choice, just the way we think about natural food. The part that involves you is really simple. Go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes. You'll find all the ways you can interact with the podcast. And when you do that, like and share and review and give us a thumbs up, hit the bell on YouTube to hear about upcoming um, episodes, subscribe to hear about upcoming episodes, things like that. Basically, you know the deal. If you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's get started. Alan, um, I like not giving people intros so I can hear what they say about themselves. Tell people who the hell you, <clears throat> what you do. So, pardon me, a little bit bad allergies today. Grass is really bad in Pittsburgh area right now. I'm an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine. been practicing for 30 years, um, but more important to this part of the conversation, I reactivated my track and field career at the ripe old age of 39 and began running master's track again. But there's more to it than that. It's not like you're just, you know, you're not just an average runner, as I hinted at the, just moments ago. Please so, don't be shy. I started running at 39. I didn't know anything about master's track. I didn't realize it's a bad time to enter an age group at the end of the uh, cycle as the cycle is 35 to 39. The first race I ran, I was 39 and 11 months and a few days in chain. And I won the nationals, which was... Yeah. Not normally what happens. Let's just pause there. Let's just pause. You decided to get back into sprinting at 39. For me, it was 45. And right. I mean, was that like literally your first race when you got back into track? That was my, I ran. So I decided in the fall of that fall before I ran. And like everybody else, I went too fast, too hard, hurt my hamstring, had a hamstring tear, settled down for a couple of months, raced in February once, and then went to nationals in March. So for all practical purposes, you're like your third race, you won nationals. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a specific question about that in a second, but, uh, but that is not your only claim to fame. Please continue. And again, don't be shy. Because again, so, look, there's not a whole lot of us master sprinters to begin with. And to uh, hear from someone who's at the top of the game is very entertaining. So, you know, hit me. Come on. So I only ran, I sprinted for a couple of years in college. I went to college at McGill in Montreal and there was no outdoor track season. So we ran two years indoors. And then following that, I moved to Toronto for a year and I studied at York University, but I really was there to run track because people really was, realized what was happening in the early eighties, York University, that was the home of Charlie Francis. Right. I was Rome and the Canadian national team for a year. I wasn't on the Canadian team then, I was still running. And then did that for a year, doing my master's, was invited to, to try out the Canadian bobsled team, made that team, did that for a year and then went to medical school. So that's my, my background, nutshell. 
So that's the background part. And for people who don't know, Charlie Francis was one of the best um, sprinting coaches of all time. He coached Ben Johnson. There's an amazing book called Speed Trap about Ben Johnson and Charlie Francis. It was written, well, someone wrote it with Charlie about that era and Ben Johnson testing positive for steroids and I mean, basically all of his training testing positive in Seoul and the reality behind that, which is totally not what people think um, and a very, very interesting story. And Ben, uh, I mean, just, or Charlie rather, phenomenal, phenomenal coach. So just as a history part for that. But then when you got back in a master's track, so other winning nationals in your third race, um, uh, please hit me with you know, some of the other um, claims to fame post that one. So I've won nationals, I'm not sure how many times, at least once every five-year age group since I'm 39, I'm now 60, 61. I've won the world championships a number of times. I have five gold world championships. But like all other master's, sprinters and probably more than some i've had more than my fair share of injuries mm. you know hamstring serious hamstring injuries where i've torn the tendon right off i've done that twice in the last eight years oh, i've had back surgery as a result of my training i ended up having shoulder surgery as a result of my hamstring injury so and that's what i do I, that's what i take care of i take care of this stuff so it's a double-edged sword i'm like i'm the worst patient i'm the worst patient and the best client at the same time i was gonna say you put a couple of people's kids through college Actually, truly not really, because I don't really follow what my advice. I sort of try to amend stuff, and I'm not always doing it. I'm not always doing what's best for myself. Yeah. Well, so this is not a ringing endorsement for Masters Track to hear about, you know, one injury after another and one surgery after another. But the fact that you know, th even through that and with that, um, you continued to perform at the highest level that one can think about. Um, you know, this raises the obvious question of uh, nature versus nurture. I, I, now, when I went to the World Master Track and Field Championships in Finland, this is like 12 years ago, I asked this question to all the 85 plus people. It's like, you know, nature, nurture, genetics or training. Um, before I tell you what their answer was, how do you think about that? I think there's a combination of both. I think you're born fast. You can become faster, but you never become fast. But you can always make yourself, everyone can make themselves better to, to a, within the limit of what their body can do. So there's a strong nature part and there's certainly a nurture part. It's a combination. There's certain people that are never going to be very, very fast, but they're going to get faster. There's certain people that are fast that will never get faster. You know, they yeah. certainly have to be fast to start with if you're going to be a sprinter. There's a former Olympic, he's a hurdling champion. And why did I just, uh, Ralph Mann. And Ralph wrote a book about sprinting technique and he talks about what it takes to be a sprinter. And he says, there's eight qualities, eight characteristics of being a sprinter. The first seven are genetic. And the eighth is how well you maximize your genetics. I would have to agree with that. And I believe me, I, I see that on a professional level, on a high school level. Over the years, I've coached a lot of kids, mostly just friends, my, my friend's kids, my son, his friends. And I know from the first second I meet the, the person, the child, whether they're going to be fast or not. Yeah. Now, I know that I can make them faster, but I can tell you right off the bat, you know, I, I my own daughter. Good example. She used to come train with us. She was like four or five years old. She would be able to jump single stairs, double stairs when she was six, seven years old. And she ended up being a very fast, phenomenal athlete where there's boys that were 10 years older than her. They couldn't do the same thing she was doing. She was doing the five or six. It was just, it was just natural to her. Yeah. So if we're going to talk about the genetic part, are there athletes in your family before you, parents, grandparents, et cetera? So my mom was, I mean, I'm sure my mom's athletic abilities were tamped a little bit. She was a Holocaust survivor. So she really never had a chance to develop her athletic skill, but she was a great, as she still is. I mean, she was a runner. She ran marathons in her forties, very good athlete, played tennis, but my dad was the athlete of the family. We grew up in Montreal in the forties and fifties. Everybody knew who my dad was. 
just from basketball and from, he ran, he didn't run anything. He played basketball and played baseball, but he was a natural athlete. He's a guy who took up golf at 35 and got down to a legit two handicap in a country club course. Like not like the, the real courses and played, played internationally sort of for, or nationally for his club. Well, so I'm going to use this as a way of making myself feel better about how much faster uh, you are than I am. And I'm, you know, pretty fast guy. But uh, for me, it skipped a generation. So neither of my parents were in any way athletic. Um, in fact, my sister, who is a figure skater, both of us were kind of wondering how we became athletes at all. And I don't know what her, how, how she kind of concluded uh, or figured out the answer for herself. But for me, when I was about 40, actually, it was after I, I think it was after I started sprinting again, my parents were moving out of their house and my mom had her father's high school yearbook. And I was flipping through it and I got to his picture and it said gymnast. And that was my first sport. I was an all-American gymnast. And it's like, oh, okay, well, now it's not so enigmatic and ridiculous and out of nowhere. So that was that, that, that made me feel good. Yeah, there's gotta be there's gotta be some link, you know. Yeah. A sport that's based that's so native. It's not like a hand-eye sport, like sprinting is something you you have in you. Yeah. You can develop baseball, you develop your hand-eye skill, you can develop other things, your foot's your foot skills playing soccer, but either can run fast or you can't run fast. By the way, to close the loop, um, when I asked all the the 85-year-old plus people, uh, nature and nurture, they all had the exact same answer, which was, it's 100% genetics that I'm able to do this at this age, and it's training that I'm beating that guy over there. Now, the other guy over there was saying the same thing, pointing the other direction. So the who wins part is a whole different story. And at that meet, it was in, in Finland, and what was so much fun, there was a guy who was 102 year, 101 years old, and he did the field events. So he came out on his walker up to where they were going to, where he's going to do the shot put. He puts the walker down, takes two steps, they hand him the shot. I don't know, at that age, it weighs like five pounds, maybe, I have no idea. Throws it like, you know, 10 feet, and the crowd goes insane because everybody wants to be that guy. Yes. It's like now one thing, so for masters athletics, people to explain it for people who don't know, um, it used to start at 35 and up and now they just dropped it down to 25. I heard the other night. Did you hear that? Yes and no. So when I started, it was 40 and over, but there was sub masters of 35 to 39. Like that first meet I ran was not recognized internationally as masters by the 39. Still for like international stuff for world championships, 35 is the youngest. In the US, we say 30 to 35 is considered Submasters now, and they're allowing 25 to 29 year olds compete, but they're not true masters. Just trying, I think what the hope is we get some of these marginal people that are want to train still at that age, but they're not really international, that they'll keep going on and become masters later on in life. It's a really interesting thing. I, well, first of all, let me back up. So, um, starts at whatever age um, we're talking about now 20, 25, 35, 40, but it goes in five year increments. So, 35 to 39, 40 to 45, or 40 to 44, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up. Um, and like all the way up, I think actually they, yeah, they even, they even keep going from 95 plus. They don't even give you a break from 90 over. And my favorite thing is um, there's very few guys in the 95 plus, And I think everyone's hope is that they just outlive all their competitors. Uh, so that way they're guaranteed something when they get into their nineties. There certainly is an attrition in master's track. What my experience has been the peak for guys is 50 to 55, 55 to 59. Yeah. And then dropping off again, they, at 50, 55, people have had their families and they have more free time. And then after 59, they start dropping off for health issues, injury issues, or whatever. You know, so really the peak in terms of numbers. Yeah. Well, so um, I was going to say something else about the um, the age group thing. And then, uh, man, I had a thought and sorry, totally lost it. Uh, and it's okay. Well, I think one of the reasons that people start dropping off um, after 59-ish 
is how well they're performing. Speaking personally, what I noticed, so I haven't really gotten to do much training since COVID. So I had my first couple of races in the last few days and I'm really disappointed to see. Happily, I've still got really good 50, 60 meter time, but my hundred is like falling off a cliff. And part now I'm 59, just turned 59. So part of me is thinking, yeah, I'll be okay when I'm 60. But another part of me is going, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I might have to relegate myself to just being happy with, you know, good 50, 50 meter times and 60 meter times. So we shall see. But the interesting thing about, I know what it was, the thing about encouraging people to stick around, most of the competitive athletes that I know, most of the sprint, people who were who were highly ranked sprinters in, in college and beyond college, um, they drop out because they're just so damn tired. They've been working it really, really hard and they don't feel the urge to keep going when there isn't the same kind of benefit. There isn't prize money, there isn't sponsorship money, all those things as they get older. Now, one exception to that, one of my friends and uh, coaches is a guy named James Davis. James is a, a world champion four by 400 meter runner. And James, um, you know, I kept saying, come on, James, you should get into masters. It'd be a lot of fun. And he's like, yeah, I don't think so. And then he discovered that his high school nemesis had the American record in the four. He goes, I'm back. <laughs> so, so, I, so I, what, this, this is my favorite thing about master's track is training is really hard and gets harder. There's no benefits. Again, there's no prize money. There's no extrinsic benefits. We're all ridiculously competitive for no good reason, but we're old enough and mature enough to know that, you know, we're complete boneheads for doing any of this, for working that hard and being that competitive. And so when, when I meet someone on the track, it's like having a secret handshake. It's like, oh, you're an idiot too. Welcome to the club. Pleasure to meet you. I have to agree with that. There is this fraternity for sure amongst us. And I've, li- I've never met anyone on the track that I haven't adored. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a wonderful group of human beings, at least everyone that I've hung out with. I, I imagine actually, you know, with the guys who are competitive with you, those top five, maybe a little different. There's some differences. I mean, there's always the hint of the PED thing is always lingering over the top of Masters, even Masters track. No. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Not, not hint of. I mean, there's like no question about it. So when I was in the worlds, there's a guy sitting next to me. I'm not going to mention his name for no apparent reason. And my wife is sitting on, on the other side and she leans over and kind of whispers, do you think he's taking something? And I went, oh my God, yes. And he was in his, he was in his late fifties. He had perfect skin tone, ripped to shreds. Um, he wins the 100, he wins the 200, and they pull him for testing. And he starts screaming, oh, this is all racist. And I said to him, dude, uh, 85% of the people here are black, just like you. It's not racist. And so he tests positive. And his story goes from, no, I didn't, to you can't tell me what to, to someone dope me, to oh, yeah. you can't tell me what I can do with my body, to um, I spent a lot of money to be here. I should be able to do whatever I want. And his last one, his last line of defense was, you're telling me I can't take Viagra to please my woman? which was a good one because they didn't test him for that. But for people who don't know, it sounds crazy. Viagra is a performance, in theory, potentially a performance enhancing drug for sprinters because it's a vasodilator, gets more blood in your muscles, et cetera. So not necessarily the one you want when you're running, but you know, that's a whole different story. So that individual you're referring to, yeah, I feel personally responsible for him taking his steroids. Because I beat him all the time until he did that. All right. Interesting. And then he went one year, he all of a sudden I was hurt and he beat me. And then next year, world records and stuff. And then back, we're back to the same pattern of me beating him all the time again. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. I don't know how, how true it is in general for master's athletes. Obviously you can take steroids and go off the steroids, but you still have a lot of lingering benefits from having been on at all. Have you seen the same thing with master's athletes? I do believe so. I mean, there's look, 
what's running is muscle memory, right? Yeah. And it's also training. Like you were saying, you're having trouble with your longer distances. Well, that's speed endurance. If you can train harder, train longer, you're going to have lingering effects. It's a, yeah. There's no right. There's, no one has an answer to when steroid effects stop working. And I believe it works forever. I trained with Ben and I trained with those guys. And I, I can tell you like anecdotally, I'd see what happens is they, they'd be running with us. We'd be close, you know, lifting weights the same. Then they go away for a month to their training camp. And I say training camp, you know, they go far away and they come back and all of a sudden their performances were outrageously different, like dropping two seconds at a 200, three seconds at 300. I remember lifting weights with one of the guys benching 135 for like 10 or 15. And he comes back a month later and he's benching two and a quarter for 10 or 15. It's like, it's this stuff. There's no doubt about it, you know? Well, you know, there's an interesting thing. It's like, it definitely does something. And what it does, you know, a lot of people think all you have to do is take steroids and then that takes care of the rest. You're going to get big, you're going to get fast, you're going to get lean, but A, it affects people differently. There's a great, um, there's a YouTuber who did a really great video that was essentially, you want to know how steroids will affect you, do a cycle and see, because not everyone is equally responsive and he's a bodybuilder. And so he goes, you know, here's some bodybuilders who at 18 were skinny little whatever people. And then by 21 were monsters. And then there's a bunch of other guys who at 18 were the same skinny people and took steroids. And by the time they were 20, they were still, you know, fit, but relatively skinny. So right. that's the thing with Ben backing up. I'll, I'll give away the punchline to um, speed trap is the steroid that he ostensibly tested positive for in Seoul. He says, Oh, I didn't take that one because I took it two years ago and I didn't like it. It didn't work for me. It made me bigger and slower. Right. So he was hyper-responsive. Ben, I mean, went from being a skinny guy to being a huge guy. Um, yeah. So it was very obvious what was going on. But the, but the book is basically explaining, A, everybody was doing it. And B, um, you know, I didn't do the thing that you said I did. He claimed that someone, uh, an American guy, doped him. And that guy in a 30 for 30 episode on ESPN was asked that he wouldn't appear on camera, but was asked, did you actually dope Ben? Like he says, do you know what his answer was? I remember. I remember saw this. He said, he said, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't definitive one way or the other. Yeah, that's the closest thing to an admission of guilt I've ever heard in my life. I mean, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. The answer is no. If you didn't. I mean, geez. So let's truth be told with that that story is everyone was guilty. They yeah. they something he might not have been doing, but he did have steroids in his body. They just didn't oh, test yeah. for them. Well, you know, but then again, so did Carl Lewis, that yeah. same that same race, he didn't test positive for steroids. He tested positive for stimulants. Carl was suspended earlier that year. He was put on probation for his findings, and they dro- the USDA dropped them. Well, and Carl's one of those guys who I have no question that they put him on some steroids at some point. And you can see it just didn't have that same effect. He didn't get big. He didn't get, you know, it just didn't affect him that way. So for him, if anything's going to work, it's going to be stimulants because the steroids clearly were not, he was not responsive to that is my guess. Well, the obvious, the thing that was the sine qua non for knowing that Carl was doing something was all of a sudden wearing braces in your mid to late twenties means your bones are changing. Your bones change because you have growth in your bones and that's a, a side effect of steroids and growth hormone. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, watching people's heads grow when they take certain steroids right. is yeah. free. Barry, Barry Bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. he didn't take anything. Come on. Just his head size changed when he was 30. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty, pretty rare for your hat size to change. Oh shit. I never thought about that. 
It's priceless. Well, let's let's bring this down for normal humans. Um, so, if people are, you know, first of all, there's I always think there's a, a comment about how there's a big confusion about what sprinting is at all. So, for example, um, I rail against fitness guys who talk about doing high intensity interval training, and they say, "Well, just go out and sprint for 30 seconds, then rest for 30 seconds, and repeat that eight times." And I say, if you're really sprinting, you can do that two times. And then you're right. down for the count. And they go, no, I just mean go all out. I go, yeah, I don't get it. I don't think you get it. If I go all out for 30 seconds and I rest for 30 seconds, I can crawl for the next 30 seconds, but I'm still sucking air like there's no tomorrow. And I, and I said, you might be running as fast as you can, but you're not sprinting. You're doing a very different thing. And so if you can either uh, echo that or argue with that and just talk about the difference between running as fast as you can and sprinting. So it's all about energy sources. So the easiest way to think of us as our bodies are just cars, <clears throat> different gas for different for different fuel economies. So if you're running full out, you'll use up your high test gas first if you're doing that. Once you've used that up, you don't have any more of that left. So you're going to go to a lesser grade of gas, which is not based on ATP, which is the, you know, it's just, it's the enzymes we use and creatine, which is the other stuff that we have that we fire when we sprint. So once that's depleted, it doesn't replenish in 30 seconds. You start using secondary sources. You second using different anaerobic system, more lactic acid, you start building up using your aerobic system. So you can't possibly use the same energy systems repeatedly like that. Our bodies just aren't made that way. So yes, you might feel like you're running all out, but you're running all out at a, a very different level. You're not running the same performances. Your times are going to be different. You're using a different energy system. So it's truly not a spread. It's a high intensity workout. I have a theory that high intensity interval training works for people who aren't sprinters for that reason, because it really is stressing them more than they've stressed before and, and pushing them to the limit of the energy systems they have access to. But it's a completely different game. I mean, for, you know, high intensity intervals, that's, that's what you and I do. That's our normal modus operandi. Right. And the way we train those things differently, you know, why do we lift weights? We lift weights because it gives a little testosterone boost and it also stimulates those, those high intensity workouts, get maximize your energy systems. Yeah. And that's what, the way we do like the one thing charlie francis taught going back to again charlie francis because everyone still uses his theories and coaches that way i remember he was completely way ahead of the curve when we're 1982 our workout was three by 300 that was the whole workout but we were 20 minutes between each one he wanted to re replenish your atp he didn't think of it he didn't know it was an atp system or it was a cpk system you know creatinine system he knew that it was an energy system they had to replenish and you'd have to wait 20 minutes doing it again in 10 minutes or five minutes it's speed endurance it's not pure speed he wanted pure speed workouts you could have a full recovery those guys would be there for two three three four hours doing a workout because he wanted quality yeah well, there was something else in reading reading Speed Trap that made me um, envious of the people who are really at the top of that game because it was not only that they were they were waiting for all that time between bouts, but it was also what they were doing while they were waiting. So, like the story of you know Ben, he shows up, gets a massage, warms up, gets a massage, does that first hundred meters, gets a massage. <laughs> it was it was I mean being treated like a racehorse. And yeah. man, that sounds like that could be really entertaining. Entertaining, but time consuming. They, I mean, that you have another job when you're doing that. You really cannot. Oh, so, in the Canadian system, people were funded, but they were funded for you know, $2,000 a year. Charlie was great that way. No one gives Charlie credit for that. Charlie helped out those athletes with any way he could. He drove them, he picked them up, he fed them. Because, you know, no one really, there were most of those guys were from poor working class families and they couldn't afford to do that. So, Charlie was phenomenal that way. And he doesn't get any credit for that. 
Yeah, no, it, 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 he very he was very paternal with all of his yeah. athletes. Yeah, it's really amazing to watch. So bring this down again for normal human beings. Um, for people, if somebody, I'm, this is going to sound weird. I'm trying to think of how I want to ask this. I was going to say, now let me do it this way. Someone's not necessarily a sprinter sprinter, but they want to get faster. They want to work on you know their ATP system as much as they can just for the fun of it. If you're going to give people advice on how to make the move into speed training, what would you recommend? So I believe it's twofold. I believe you have to do uh, threefold, actually. There's a flexibility fold, a flexibility component of it, which is important. I think it's a bit overrated in some ways because, I mean, if you understand muscle physiology, there's a length tension curve. So you can generate more length, more strength as your muscles get longer, but there's a point where you generate less strength when you're flexing a muscle if the muscle gets too long. So people can overstretch. And there's a litany of studies that show people stretch too much before performances, actually performances get worse. So you need to get a comfortable physiologic stretch, but not too much. That's one. Strength is really important. So you want to be strong enough to sprint. You don't want to start sprinting if you're not strong enough, because that's when you get muscle imbalance. That's when you get hurt. So, you know, squats are still great. You know, power exercises, cleans, hang cleans, snatches, plyometric exercises, the next one, those two things go together. And then sprinting. So if you're going to sprint when you're not sprinting, do running that is not sprinting. These people that and it's a really big thing on masters right now. People are posting their workouts and like they're doing 10 by 200 slow. Well, if you're going to do 10 by 200 slow, you're going to run a, two, a slow 200 when you run a 200. You just can't, they're just not interchangeable. If you want to run fast, you got to run fast and you want to train to recover. 10 by 200 is a great recovery day. If you want to do that, that's what Charlie used to do. We used to have a, a day where it was a recovery day. You just do repeat hundreds and two hundreds just to flush your body out and get your length back in your muscles it's not a training benefit that it's a recovery benefit. Training has to be done at an intensity that's close to race pace or building towards it. And there's different ways to train. You got to train short, short to long, you know, do short stuff, do intermediate stuff, do long stuff, but everything has to be quality. There has to be some quality in your workouts all the time. And I'd argue that that's the same, you know, for people who aren't sprinters. In fact, this is the thing that, um, that I don't know why I'm having a hard time with names all of a sudden. My brain is just totally not working. Come on, New Zealand coach. Oh, this is so embarrassing. Peter Snell's coach. I don't know what it is. Like I think about a year ago is when names just started falling out of my head entirely. Anyway, uh, it, it'll pop into my head in a second and I'll find it very disturbing when it just shows up out of nowhere. Suffice to say, he's one of the most successful distance coaches of all times. Coach people from the 800 to the marathon and beyond um, from New Zealand had more world champions than and Olympic champions than any other coach. And this is his line as well. It's like, you've got to train for the speed that you want to be running. Now he's putting in a long base to build up your aerobic capacity, et cetera. But the, the essence is even his marathoners were training with his 800 meter runners because they needed to build up that speed for themselves. And so this is a thing when people ask about going running faster, train at the pace that you want to be racing at. Now, if you're doing a longer distance, that speed is going to change. You're not going to be running consistent speed the whole time, but many people just push themselves very hard at all. And I think sometimes they're maybe rightfully so afraid to. I agree, but that, and then that's the fine balance. And truly for a master's athlete, I think that's where the injuries occur. As a general rule. Wait, wait, which part? When you're pushing harder or when you're. Harder. You have to push harder to get faster, but yeah. that's your risk of injuries. You're right. hundred percent. And I think that's happens more with masters and with younger athletes. So personally, I only get hurt when I'm at the top of my game. I never get hurt leading up to it. Interesting. Three years ago. Where went to nationals in Spokane, and I, I, I raced. I race rarely. If a good year for me, I'll have three races. Just because I take calls still, I work weekends. I work, you know, every other weekend, every third weekend, and I just 
races. There aren't races in the area. So if I'm lucky, I'll have three good races in the year. That year, I ran two races. My third race was in Spokane. Ran great. Ran fastest 100 in the world that year, fastest 200 in the world that year. But I wasn't satisfied because that's who I am. And that's probably what drives me. So I came back from Spokane, having run the fastest time in 200 ago. I can run a faster 200. So I started pushing. I came back on a Sunday, went to track Monday, went Wednesday, went Saturday, had my spikes on. Sunday, go with my son to do starts, bolt my hamstring. Boom, done. You know, four weeks before world championships because I wanted to go faster, but I was running fast. It just wasn't, it wasn't fast enough for me. Well, I don't know why I didn't ask this to begin with. Um, so what kind of times are you running these days? Or yeah, let's use these days instead of, you know, best of all. Oh, two years ago is the best I can do because that's the last race I ran. I ran 11.7 for the 100. And you were what age then? 59? 59, yeah. yeah. It's outrageous. Yeah. So it was the number one time in the world by a long shot, actually. In the 200, I ran on 24 seconds. Well, so it was the number one time. And I'm trying to get back there. I just don't know where I am because I haven't raced. I ran one race this winter. There happened to be one race this winter that I went to. It uh, was in Virginia. It was indoor championships. I ran a 60. I hadn't run a 60 in years. And I flew all the way to Virginia for this race. The 200, I couldn't stay to because they changed the schedule. My hunt, oh, it's better than that. The 100, we get into the blocks. Some gentleman in my race, false starts, where he's literally two steps out before the gun goes off. They never called it back. So I ran the whole race chasing him. It wasn't a very good race because none of us went with the gun. You know, we just right. ended up beating him, but it wasn't the race I wanted to run. I didn't execute anything. because, like, like, I looked up and I went, holy crap, this guy is two meters up on me and I know I'm faster than he is. So I just like put my head down and didn't, didn't run dry phase, didn't run anything. I ended up passing about 30 or 40 meters and running, but that was the only race I run. It was like seven, seven, which wasn't bad for the 60. I mean, it's, it's considered a good time for our age group, but I'm not sure where I really. No, I mean, I was running, I was running eight, two. So I was, you know, two and a half steps behind you, which would have made me happy, frankly. <laughs> that was my one race. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm close to, I should be close to 12. I, I've signed up for nationals this year. I had intended on running a meet before that. I was supposed to go to Landover two weeks ago. I had a little bit of a back stuff, a little setback, and driving four hours with a sore back was probably not the smartest thing. So I'll just go to Ames without any races in my belt in like basically three years. I love it. Well, you know, I just want to highlight this, this is the life of a master sprinter. You fly or drive to somewhere very far away and you run for roughly 10 to 15 seconds total and then you go home. <laughs> And you spend all your own money doing that thing. That's and right. No rewards except for a little medal. Or yeah. actually, the reward to me is it's never it's never the medal or anything else. It's I'm just driven by myself. I want to beat yeah. what I can do the time before. You know, I know what my competition is. Sort of go in there. I'm never I never go in there confident to get a win because I just don't think you can be, especially with sprinting. But I want to run. I'm running for myself. If I yeah. finish run the be a better time than I ran the week before, I'm happy. You know, if I finished first and I ran a slower time the week before, I'm not happy. I'm starting to, when I first started sprinting, my goal was, of course, to win races because I didn't know anything about what the competition was, frankly. And then very quickly, when I discovered what the competition was like, and it included a lot of former professional athletes, um, I realized that my goal was instead to get to the line um, and have people look at me and go, what the hell is he doing here? Because I'm, you know, five, five little white guy uh, and I'm racing against, you know, a lot of guys who were really lean, buff, a lot of big black guys. That was my first goal. My secondary goal was to finish the race and have people go, what the hell? Um, and so even if I don't win, that happens. <laughs> and, and I don't know about you. Uh, do you remember what age you became an inspiration? 
I don't think I've ever been inspiration. I mean, people, I've, I've had people chain with me. No, I've, no, no. Because, because like the, when I'm at a lot of races, there's a bunch of 30 year olds. And when I, they, I say I'm 59, they go, oh my God, you're so inspiring. And I go, hey, bite me. So, <laughs> so I, I guess I was 40, 41. I went to an open meet and I was running with the high school kids and there were some college kids there and I made the finals in the 55. And one of the kids came up to me and asked me what grade I was in. I was 41. <laughs> That's great. You know what? My mom had that. She was in her early 40s. She came to pick me up in high school for something. She walks in, they were selling yearbooks at the at the a desk in the, you know, right at the entrance. And as she walks by, someone says, Did you get your yearbook yet? She goes, Oh my God, I love you. What's your name? <laughs> oh, that's priceless. So the backing up again, uh, one thing you said about uh, training, um, you mentioned plyometrics. For people who don't know, can you give some examples of good plyo exercises? Well, first of all, this is when we define what plyos are, a way to transmit forces, muscular forces to the ground and back up. So any jumping activity is considered plyometric if you go down and come up. It's not just jumping from the ground. It's the landing and the exploding back up as a plyometric exercise. So if you jump, let's say you take a step down from a step and you hit the ground and jump, that's a plyometric. So you're, what you're trying to do is try to get your muscles and the tendons to sense the ground and then develop an elastic force on the way up. That's plyometric. So simple ones are repeated jumping is a plyometric exercise. Repeated hopping is a plyometric exercise. Hopping for distance one after the other is a plyometric exercise. I'm a big fan of like doing plyometrics on stairs going up because it's 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 easy to do. It's manageable. Single leg, double leg, every other stair, you know, things like that. Plyometrics on the ground, hopping for distance, you know, how many steps you take over 10 meters, how many take over 20 meters. The nice thing about that is you can check your, your leg, your, your strength. You can say like on my left leg, I can do... 20 meters in 5.5 steps on my right leg. It's taking me six. So you have an imbalance there. So you can work on. So I think plyometrics are great. They can be overdone also because it's pretty hard on your body. You really have to build up to them really slowly, yeah. but it's a good training, especially it's a really good adjunct training. If you don't really have access to a lot of weights, and you don't want to do a lot of weights. Yeah. There's a, there are a number of exercises that I refer to as um, the poor man's weight room. So running up hills, for example, or doing stairs is um, it can be a really great thing. If you don't have access to actual training equipment. Right. We used to do when I was training in college. So we were in Montreal. There was no indoor facility and the winter was minus 30. And we used to run outside sometimes, but we used to do a lot of wall running. You just lean into the wall and sprint for 40, 45 seconds, get your knees up, works on your knee lift, works on your anaerobic stuff. Again, poor man's way of training. There's ways to train. You know, yeah. I also run outside in a skin suit, you know, in minus 30 degree weather, full blast, have a full blast sprint. And we were in pulling stuff because you warm up and you go. Yeah. You get used well, so, you know, back to your, your comment about injuries, because when I got back into sprinting, uh, my first two years were just one injury after another. But I think it was mostly because I, my body was 45 and my brain was 20, 25. And so I just didn't know what I was doing. And I also had some form issues that I corrected when I got out of my shoes and started running barefoot because I could feel them when I ran barefoot and that cleaned those up. But yeah, it was, it was sort of one after another, after another. I've also got a compromised spine. Um, so that didn't help either. But the, the thing that is interesting is when you are going all out, well, there's two components. One is it took me two, two and a half years till I was unafraid to go all out where I just realized, okay, now I'm willing to do it. I'm not worried about getting injured so much. And even if I was, I mean, I think the worry, if there was any, I just pushed it to the side. It's like, I'm willing to do it and just see what happens. And so that was a, a very noticeable change. But, you know, high speed motion is a really difficult, challenging neurological thing. And sometimes the signals just don't get to the right place at the right time. You know, you're, you're right on the edge, just how well a body can function and shit goes wrong. 
Yes. And there's also, there's a real rhythm to running, you know, and you feel as time goes on, that's what I think changes as a, as a season goes on, as your speed increases. I mean, I don't think you've changed that much, but I think the rhythm you're running, things feel more natural, mm. you know, it's coming easier. However, saying that as we age, I mean, I remember when I was 40, I step on the track, no matter what, just warm up for three minutes and go and feel great. Now it's like 15 minutes in, I'm starting to feel like, yeah, I'm starting getting some rhythm half an hour in, I'm starting a little bit better. You know, there's definitely like, I really rhythm is the best way to put it. And the rhythm gets better. The more, the better your rhythm gets, the better you're going to run. You have to have fluidity to your emotion. Yeah. You know, and we, we talked about time as well. Um, and you, you kind of glossed over something that I really, that I'm addressing and dealing with, which is that at a certain point, you know, you just can't keep getting faster. And so how are you, how do you in your mind play with the phenomenon that over time now things are going to be getting slower? So that's a very hard concept. And I look at it, if you want to look at it logically, you look back and go, okay, let's look at the master's records. Well, every five years, they're going to be slower than they were five years ago. So I should fit in that pattern. But then you look at yourself and go, I don't feel that different. Like, why am I running slower? But it's, there's no doubt. I look like, I look at races now of 55 and 60 year olds running. I go, wow, they look so slow. And I go, mm, that's me, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. It's a, it's a big mind game. And you have to realize that, like, I'll tell you what the other, the other big awakener is. So you look, if you really look at go AU times or kids times, there's 13 year olds, guys that would be smoking us 60 year olds. Yeah. You know? 14 year old girls, 15 year old girls that are killing us. Like, so yeah, we're doing what we can do, but our bodies are aging. So if you can get through that, you just have to put in perspective. Like that's when you go to the age group thing. Yeah. So yeah, I'm running about half a second slower than I was eight years ago, but I'm still running half a second faster than the national average or whatever. So that's the way, if you want to make yourself feel good, so you can make you feel good. If you want to feel bad, you go like, yeah, last year, this two, five years ago, this time I was running 11.3 and now I'm running 11.8. That's a big difference. Doesn't yeah. sound like most people, but to us sprinters, that's like night and day. Yeah, yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, <laughs> I said to one of my training partners after um, after a very slow hundred meters the other day, uh, very slow for me. I said, I'm, I think I'm going to use the outdoor season as just a warm up for the indoor season because I know I've still got a good fifty and a sixty in me, but my hundred is, you know, it, it's not going it, to. It's possible that it's going to get down to a time that I'm happy with but maybe not. So I'm just, you know, reframing everything in my brain and I, and I watch myself reframing, which I find utterly hysterical, but you know, what are you going to do? Cognitive <laughs> dissonance is good for us. We have to reframe. If you don't, you're set yourself up to fail forever. Yeah. You know, and everyone else is getting slower. You're not alone. Like I've, this is what I tell people all the time. It's like, I have these guys. So I ran, I ran slower this year. I did last year. Yeah. That's because that's what's going to happen. You really, that's out of your control. You might get lucky because you didn't run that fast last year and this year might be a little bit better, but overall every year you get a little bit slower. Yeah. So the average, it's interesting to look at that stuff. So the average master's athlete in the hundred basically declines about a 10th of a second per year or a second per decade. Yeah. So if you're with anywhere within that, you know, so when I was, I don't know, like 40, when I was 45, I ran 11 flat for the hundred, you know, and then 50, I ran my first year 51, I ran like 11, two, 11, three, then when I was 55, I ran 11.5, 11.4. So I, I am doing that type of thing, but it is slowing down. I'm just, I think I'm slowing down a little bit less than some of those other people, but I'm yeah. still slowing every year. The first time I went to the senior games, um, uh, I was 50 and a bunch of the 60 year olds were, I was hanging out with them because uh, that was all that was there. And they said, uh, yeah, once you turn 60, things start to you know fall off a cliff a little bit. And then there was a bunch of 80 year olds who were standing around and they went, yeah, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. Just wait. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's I mean that's what it's always like that. I remember there was one of my friends I went to medical school with. We went to we we trained orthopedics together. He's going like, yeah, just he was like five or six years old. Wait till you get to be forty, you're gonna start like. And I saw him when I was forty. He goes, yeah, you still look good. And then I saw him when I was fifty. He goes, yeah, you still look good. You know, like he because he was this old forty year old when I knew him at, when I was thirty five. So it's you know what it's what you put in. It's the amount of time you want to do. It's discipline and it's it's a life commitment. You can't just be a master sprinter or any any type of master's athlete a couple months a year. Yeah. Because, you know, it's got to be lifestyle. It's going to be commitment. One thing that I've noticed, and I don't know if it's going to help very much, is that sleep is way underrated and really, really important, you know? And they, they always say, oh, you sleep less when you get older. Nah, I don't think that's true. You need to sleep more when you get older. You need more recovery time. You know, you need to take better care of yourself. Like everything's geared for young people, like to get all these massages and everything else. But I think you need that more as you age. You know, people have less time or they have more time, they're just less willing to do it. Like, I don't take advantage of that stuff. I have some stuff in the house. My wife's a physical therapist. We stretch together a little bit, but I don't take advantage of the therapy that I have in my office. <laughs> One less thing. I just like, I don't have that much time. And yeah. if I have, or I'm going to go train. I'm not going to go for therapy. Yeah, it, it really, it, my joke is um, I started Zero Shoes after being a master sprinter. And the biggest thing that fell off um, once I started Zero Shoes is being a master sprinter because I just don't have the time to train that I had when I was in retired mode prior to 2009. And so yep. it's, it's my fantasy to either build the company so that I have more time um, and or at some point, you know, be retired so I have more time. Then again, like you said, see how slow I can slow down. Right. It's just, that's what it is. You're trying to slow down the inevitable aging process. Yeah. We have no choice. And you know? we just don't, you know, there's an interesting, I have, I have my own little theory now that as we age, we see less muscular sprinters, mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, the reason is we carry less muscle, but also I think your injury risk goes up and your the, the benefits of being uber strong are outweighed by the risks of injuries. That's so interesting because um, two of the guys who, who show up on the track here, one's 79, one's 82. Um, each one of them has been, you know, in the top couple, like top two, top three in the world. And they are, A, they've gotten significantly shorter as they've aged and they're just skinny, skinny guys. And yep. they're, they have fast turnover. They don't have a lot of strength, but yep. just watching how their bodies have changed and how they've adapted to that has, is really, really interesting. And yeah, they, they're certainly not muscular. They couldn't be. So case in point is like Charlie Ali, who trains every now and then we train together, lives in Pittsburgh. You know, he's had the same body type since he's 40 years old. And if you watch, if you, you follow his career, he was good. He was good. He was good. He was good. He was great. You know, his body type, same as say the same thin muscular guy. And everyone else is trying to get down to that. Bill Collins, thin muscular guy, you know, yeah. Oscar. You know, Bill Oscar Collins. Guy. Well, Bill Collins actually is my favorite example because He's skinny, he's kind of skinny fat. He's like, he's not muscular, he's not huge, but there's a, someone who was one of the PGP-10, one of the early people having her genome sequence, who identified that for most sprinters, we've got some gene where we tend to collect body fat around the abdomen. And Bill Collins is the perfect example of that. He's got, you know, he's got like a, got a bit of a paunch and as do I, frankly. Um, but other than that, you know, not a big guy and crazy fast. Right. Well, you remember he was on the world record team in 72 for the four by one. I mean, he's- yeah, I know. Oh yeah, no, he, he comes to it honestly. That's for sure. He does. He, I think he's trying to make a comeback. Also, like it's all about for certain people, it's all about comebacks. Like someone like Charlie Ali never really missed. He never really got hurt. There's other people yeah. that get hurt more than come back. Yeah, Bill's and, gotten hurt. Willie Gall's gotten hurt. Yeah, 
there's a bunch of that. Bill, uh, I mean, yeah, Bill's a very interesting cat because he's written a book where he outlines his training program. And you look at that and go, there's no way any other human being on the planet could do what he's doing. I, I mean, we ran together and stuff. I'm not convinced that any of those guys really do that program. <laughs> you know, it's so funny you say that. When I was in Finland, there was a guy, a British guy, I don't remember his name, um, who was, you know, definitely top five, let's say. And I'm sure you know who it is, but I, again, names are not working for me right now. So um, he described his training. He goes, three days a week I go out, I run 300s at 12, th- no, 300s at 13, 300s at 12, 300s at 11, and then I'm done. And I was 100% convinced that he was lying just to intimidate people. So Steve Peters? Okay. If you want to mention a name that now rings a bell, yeah, that was him. That's him. And he's legit. I mean- Oh, he's for real. And he does, and he doesn't warm, he barely warms up, but then he'll do the same, another day he'll do like the same thing with 200s and 300s. No shit. You know? Yeah. He's pretty legit that way. And he's excellent. That's who it, I'm pretty sure that's who it is because I've heard him talk yeah, about it. No, it is. It definitely is. But, but it, literally it's like part of me has gone, all right, maybe he's running 11 highs on those 11s. Maybe it's, you know, 12 high, but even still, it's like, yeah, the way he described it, didn't warm up, just walked out, did nine, nine sprints and walked home. Yeah. It's, it's sort of true. So we're on the, I know him pretty well because we're on the world doping committee together. We investigate all these world masters doping things, but we don't investigate anything. Actually, all we do as a committee is people submit therapeutic exemptions. They're taking this drug. They want to know if they can take it while they're competing. We go, yes or no. The one thing that is a, is a no pass with that is kind of interesting is people want to go testosterone supplementation because you know their hypergonad or their levels are low, which everyone's levels get low as you age. I mean, that's not part of aging, right? right. The ups, you get to normal levels. We're not. That's not the way we're, we're put together. It's fine. You can do that, but it is cheating as far as I'm concerned, you know, you're getting to a, a, a number that you're not supposed to be at. So that's, that's the big one for us. We get these exemptions for, you know, they went to their doctor, their doctor took their blood and their testosterone level is low. Yeah. There are a number of um, 50 plus year old weightlifting guys that I know, or actually YouTube fitness guys and internet fitness guys who sell courses on how to get in shape. And, and they're all on testosterone replacement, or that's what they call it, replacement. Basically they're taking testosterone and all of them say, well, you know, it's low testosterone. Now I'm just high normal. It's like, dude, you were asymptomatic when you were quote low T. Now you're right. jacked. That's why you look like that. You can see it in the gym. It's yeah. so off. It's those shiny, vascular guys. And some of them still have a punch. That's the funny thing. You know, they're still yeah. a little bit, they're ripped, but they have this gut and they, they strut around. It's, I mean, it's an industry. It's what it is. It's an industry right now. So what I was getting back to is that those people at least are admitting they're taking it and trying to get an exemption. So people that are taking it and not trying to get the exemption that are there. And we're never as masters get a test everyone because we don't have the resources or the funds or no one really cares that much, you know? No. Well, you know, what's funny is that the people who do care, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of silly to be doing it at all, especially if you're doing it for a competitive advantage, like, because what's the, uh, other what's than bragging rights, you know, who cares? And, yeah. You're not making anything from it. You're not getting anything from it. Yeah. And it's, it's ultimately all about ego, right? Yeah. yeah. So we do, and we also run because of the ego, let's be honest, but it's a question of, can you hold your ego in check with just being good or do you have to be the best at all costs? And I mean, well, it's that field. It doesn't make any sense. No, it's completely ludicrous to do to do this. But it's also incredible. I mean, it's really satisfying for a number of reasons. My theory about sprinting. One of my theories about why sprinting, why sprinters sprint, is um, it's the same reason you go to Vegas. It's intermittent reinforcement. It's like you know, when I finish a race, someone says, "How'd you do?" My answer now is, "Can I give you the excuse, or do you just want the time?" Because you right. can never do it perfectly. And that thing of like, oh, so close is really compelling. I mean, that's what gets us, you know, pulling the lever on a slot machine. Ah, so close. Seven, seven, something else. Yep. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. There's always room for improvement, but, you know, always, always room. 
And there's always another race if you really want to do that. Well, that's true. And you know, there's something fun about it, just intrinsically fun about trying to go as fast as you can, because you don't feel like you're going slower. You're getting slower, but you feel the same as you did previously. So that's also good. And I, like I was at a, at a, at a meet um, before COVID and there's a guy there. I mean, this guy, totally, totally jacked. He's a year too younger than me, just like monstrously big. Um, and he looks at me at the beginning of the race, like dead serious, like good luck. And I said, Hey, Hey man, you know, there's no bonus points. Just have a good time, stay healthy, get to the end. Oh, and I want to kick your ass. And yeah. so, I, you know, the, the balance of that is, is very entertaining because we all, again, we're old enough to know that we're competitive for no really good reason. And it's enjoyable just for this fun of, you know, having an outlet for that urge. So, and as far as master track goes, there really is a camaraderie. Like when we go to these meets, I hang out with the same people, you know, there's, it's just a nice group of people for the most part. I mean, there's the outliers of the people who, you know, we know defeated and done whatever else, but there's a, a good group of people that genuinely sort of care for each other. Yeah. But you know what, for me personally, I care for those other people. I still want to beat everyone's ass when I go. I'm yeah. not gonna, you know, there's no two ways about it. All right. You know, and I'm not, I guess I'm not as friendly before race as I am the rest of the time, but uh, <laughs> that's what it is. Well, you know, there's, again, I won't mention this person by name, but there's this uh, a sprinter that I've done a bunch of work with who, when he's on the track before a race, his resting face is, I'm going to kill you. That's it. He's got resting, I'm going to kill you face. He's not racing and he's just, you know, relaxed and smiling. He's got resting, I'm a male model face. And it's so entertaining watching him shift into, you know, like, holy crap, where you're terrified of this guy. And then yeah. to, oh my God, you're the nicest guy in the world. Yeah, there's certainly a nice part. And I'm sort of looking forward to going back to Ames. Hopefully get a whole bunch of people there that we haven't seen for a while. Yeah. But I mean, one of the funny things I found about Masters Track now is like, especially I'm running for SoCal this year. So they make this, we're a team. Like there's no team in track and field. And there's really no team in field, you know? We're running for these things. I, I can put a relay together with a couple of guys who can run well and we'll see what we can do. So that's kind of fun. Because relays to me are the, relays are like the birthday cake of uh, track and field. It's like, it's all good, you know. It's all fun. That it makes it makes the meet so much more fun. You know, everyone feels good about it. You know, high fives all around. You know, if you go around a grid relay, it makes every meet sort of worthwhile. Well, when I was in Finland, I said to the guys there, I said, someday I hope that uh, you know you pull me around in a, in a four by one relay. And they said, if yeah. you stay healthy, at the end of the week, you know, we might need you. And yeah. I said, right, keep me posted. So it hasn't happened yet, but you're right. Relays are fun. I'll tell you the only race that's more fun than a relay, but for a totally different reason. There's a meet they have here in Colorado at the end of the year, normally um, um, Labor Day, but this year it's a couple of weeks earlier, and it's an age graded hundred. Oh yeah. So, so for people who don't know how that works, basically the older you are, the less you have to run. So I, at my age, I think I'm running 80 meters. Um, the 80 year olds are running like 50 meters. The women, of course, you know, it's adjusted for the women as well. So it's a, it's a, um, all gender, all age race. And the thing that's so much fun about it is it's a photo finish every time. I don't mean between first and second. I mean, every position it's a photo yep. finish because at the last step everyone hits the finish line at the same time because the age rating is really effective um, and we're all you know reasonably fast in that range and it's it's the best it's also uh, the only race where you have to pay extra to get in it so you pay five bucks to get in and the winner gets half the money second place gets 30 percent third place gets 20 percent and i instituted yep. a policy that the winner has to pay for pie for everybody <laughs> it's just a really good time and and yeah that one between that and the realize that the end of that race or the end of that meet it's just the most fun you could possibly have i've never run an age graded race but they seem to be fun. they tend to normally they tend to be the most benefit of the older age groups 
Well, what's funny about the race is the young guys um, are freaking out because they've never had to chase people like that. And the old guys are freaking out because they've never heard people catching up to them like that before. Yep. So it's it's psychologically challenging for everybody. But the, my my training partner Kathy Nicoletti, who's um, seventy years old, she's a multiple world champion. And Kathy twice has thought she was winning the race, and like puts her arms up in the last half a step just as she sees someone coming underneath her. <laughs> it's like whoops. So um, yeah, it's really really brilliant. Um, uh, Alan, I got we got to get out of here. So I, this is a weird question because normally when I have people on the show, people are, are on the podcast, people are, have something that they're pitching or something that they're doing, coaching or training or whatever. I don't know if there's anything, any reason that people would want to touch base with you, but if, and I don't know if you would want to make yourself available, but if you do totally optional, if people want to hear about master's track, or if they're in Pittsburgh and want to see where you're up, where you're up to and hang out a bit, um, is there an opportunity for anyone to do that? Sure. They can always email me. What's your email? Uh, hey. Actually, I'll put, we'll put it in the show notes. No problem. No problem. Funny, I, you're, we're getting to the end. So a couple of weeks ago, and this is, this is totally off the cuff. A couple of weeks ago, you sent me a pair of your shoes to try. And remarkably, I was like an idiot. The first day I, I put them on and I did way too much stuff. And I didn't get hurt. I was just sore. Yeah. But I got used to using them. And now, so I've had chronic, amongst my other aches and pains, I have chronic ankle pain, literally going back to 2007. And there's days where I just cannot run on it at all. So I've been doing all my warm up in the zero shoes and I've been warming up in the zero shoes, mostly on the turf and then switching right to my spikes. And I can honestly tell you, it's the first time I've had almost no ankle pain in the past six to eight months on a daily basis. Uh, that's awesome. And it's making me concentrate on my, on my landing and then spikes are flat anyway. So there's, it's a, every other shoe that has a lift that has something is it's really just not natural. And believe me, I'm not saying this is the answer for everyone, but it's certainly a way to it's something that I think people should be incorporating into their warmups or some part of their training just to get them to land like your way you're meant to be landed, landed your, your midfoot, not on your toes, and certainly not on, in your hind foot. Well, and conversely, I say to people, they're the perfect recovery shoe because they let your feet actually move naturally. So you're getting some circulation in there and keeping the muscles and ligaments and tendons moving. So there's lots of, there's, whether you wear them all the time, whether you wear them for competition, whether you weather for, wear them for recovery, in short, natural movement and getting that feedback from the ground is critically important for anybody at any time. And again, I really believe it's going to, it strengthens the muscles, the little muscles in your feet that we don't There's, spend enough time. Yeah. There's research from Sarah Ridge at BYU showing just walking in minimalist footwear. She didn't do the study with our shoes, but I know that she wears our shoes in her lab uh, and everyone in her lab does. Just walking in minimal shoes builds foot muscle strength as much as doing an actual exercise program for your feet. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel landing. I mean, I'm not, it wasn't a pitch or anything. I'm just telling you that four weeks into this stuff, that's all I'm using to warm up right now. And that's I've been cool. able to right through it for four weeks now. Love it. Happy to hear it. All right. We got to go because of all things, I just really looked at the clock. I'm getting my hair cut in about uh, 15 minutes. So not much, you know, just, you know, just awesome. I don't look like a total hippie freak. Um, anyway, Alan, been a total, total pleasure chatting. Um, I hope people got something out of this, just an insight into master's athletics or how they might be able to train and what's going to happen as you get older. Most importantly, uh, back to things about the podcast. If you have any questions or recommendations, people you think should be on the show, anything, if you need to reach out to me, just drop me an email, move at join the movement, movement com. Again, go back to the website to find previous episodes and other ways to interact with all the content we're creating and how to find us on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, et cetera. Uh, but most importantly, go out, have fun and live life feet first.